0: How do you really occupy another country and include it into your own empire? I'm not thinking about the sheer concept of occupying in terms of putting a lot of troops in another territory, a lot of birds on the ground so to speak, but how do you really do that in practice? How does the nitty-gritty details work? You know, after the war is won and the new normality is about to kick in, how do you really do that? Who will police? Who will produce what goods and to whom? And who will tax? Who will rule? Who will make new laws? Who will be judges and lawyers in this new system? Who will make sure that basically everything works? And how do you just take another people with a different culture and language and make them part of your country? At some point, you must have some local help, right? If not, you would need to import a hell of a lot of officials and bureaucrats and law enforcers, etc. People that you most likely already need in your existing home country. And all this is the boring reality of taking another country that Adolf Hitler will discover in 1940 and they have to improvise. Even the Nazis didn't have an occupation manual 101 telling them what exactly to do in every case. It stands in stark contrast to all the historical computer games like the Civilization series and many other similar games. Because, like traditionally, you beat the other party's military and defenses and you take a city basically. And after a little bit of unrest, where the city does not want your rule, you perhaps build them a temple or a theatre so that they can get something to get their minds off the occupation. And then the city quite quickly starts working again, giving your empire goods, money, science and even new troops. It's a lot more complicated in reality though, and we will see that the Nazis are forced to rethink their plans several times and realise that it's very, very hard to predict how a country will react to a foreign power coming in and taking control. As we continue our journey following Witkin Quisling's The Traitor's Life, we will slowly get into the harsh realities of the chaotic mess it really is to occupy another country. But before we get quite there, we will pick up a story that is at least or perhaps even more fascinating. We will try to understand more of what made fascism and national socialism grow so strong in Europe, making some of the most extreme ideologies in human history seem like the only logical answer to a lot of people. This is the second part of the series about Nazism and Vidkun Quisling, the Norwegian Second World War traitor, becoming world famous to such an extent that the very name Quisling has become an adjective in the English vocabulary. If you haven't already heard the first episode, you might want to, but that is of course entirely up to you. We are in this series using Quisling as our lens to view the rise of far-right ideologies and mindsets in Europe before and during the Second World War. And even though we will follow Quisling's life quite specifically, this is a quite common story to what will play out many different places in Europe, more or less in parallel. And... Quite understandable, understandable rise of anti-communism, followed by right-wing extreme ideology such as fascism and National Socialism, it was not only isolated to Italy or Germany, it happened several different places. So where we left off last time was around 1929-1930, and Quisling's last spell in what had become the Soviet Union was now at a definite halt. He had gone from being a military attaché in Petrograd in 1918, experiencing the Red Terror after the Communist Revolution. He had worked in Finland, where he met the famous Frithjof Nansen that would recruit him to humanitarian action in what is now Ukraine that was being struck by a devastating famine. He would marry not only one, but two Russian young women, return to Norway for a while before again working in the Soviet Union for his friend, the businessman Frederick Pritz, doing various diplomatic work. Towards the end of all this, it is a frustrated nonsense and a frustrated quistling that are seeing that Stalin is shutting the door for all international intervention on Soviet soil and that even humanitarian aid to the hunger stricken Ukraine is being closed off looking at it like this it is easy to see why Quisling starts to hate communism so much after all Stalin is denying non himself to send food to people dying of starvation I mean who wouldn't be upset right it is late in 1929 and Quisling he is by now 42 years old he is back in Norway with no job and he only gets a small pension from the military, and he has spent most of the past decade abroad. And while this might seem like a dead period in time for him, it might actually be one of the most interesting times in Quisling's life, because it tells us so much about how something as unfathomable as fascism and Nazism, from a certain view, can actually make sense somehow. And using Norway and Quisling as our looking glass, we actually get a pretty good understanding of how he was in many parts of Europe in this time. And for me, this is something of the most fascinating of all of this. Because what makes people buy into something as crazy as Nazism and fascism? It also serves as a reminder that when we are looking at this many, many decades later, knowing how it would all play out, it is different than for the people living in the middle of this. Because they did, of course, not have the luxury of hindsight. And I'm not saying this to justify what they did or said, but it is important to keep in the back of our head so that we can really try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in Europe at around 1930. Good and evil doesn't really work well as characteristics if we are truly to understand human behavior, because there are far too many nuances. The saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions is, is, in some cases, true, right? For many of these people, however twisted their ideas were, they had a very, very strong sense of doing what they felt was right. Many of them felt under threat, and many of them felt a great sense of urgency like if we don't do anything now it will lead to fatal consequences later on and we will not spend heaps of time going into detail about the specifics of Norwegian politics at this time but in order to understand why Quisling ended up where he did we need to get at least a superficial understanding of how it was and you know it was the same in many many different places in Europe so the dynamics plays out several places so when Queensland comes back at the end of 1929 uh, his country is hard-hit by international financial crises leading to unemployment and poor standards of living during this time there have been many different governments coming and going and it's fair to say that was you know great political instability From 1920 to when Queensland came back, there had been eight different governments and different heads of state, meaning that power basically shifted roughly once a year. And that is not, you know, a great recipe for stability and good rule. There was a great sense in the populations that the politicians were not able to do anything about the economic problems and that no real change or progress was being made even though power was shifting. At the same time, as we have this economic crisis, there is a sharp rise in the popularity of the Labour movement following the communist revolution in Russia. And various socialist and communist ideologies are gaining more and more support, especially among the working classes. In Norway, the Labour Party has been more or less communist at this point. And they are very closely connected to the Communist Party in the Soviet Union before gradually bragging away, 1923 is mentioned as the year in question. And on the other flank, we see the growth of something that is extremely far right, that is nationalist and that is conservative. And it is quite easy to see this as a reaction to the Communist Revolution that in turn was a reaction to a monarchy not willing to grant working people basic rights so it's definitely possible to see all of this as a reaction and counter reaction kind of synergy going way way back in this political landscape you have an extremely hardcore left that basically want to hand a lot of power over to the working classes and the unions with very much state control and then you have a strong nationalistic movement, on the other hand, with a great deal of sympathy towards the old aristocracy and the old upper classes, and a lot of legacy in terms of racism and anti-Semitism. They believe in the whole white man's burden thing. You know, this terrible saying pointing to that some white people saw it as their obligation to colonize and, quote unquote, civilize people of different color than themselves. And in between these extremes you have various political fractions struggling to keep hold of power trying to maneuver international economics they can do very little about and i, th- I think it's definitely possible to draw some parallels to the weimar republic in germany by the way that collapsed after hitler gained power in 1933 And what is also really important to understand for the people of the time was the appeal that was embedded in this socialism slash communism and the powerful dreams of revolution and equal society. We also tend to forget that communism at this point was international. It was never an ideology meant for only one country or one part of the world. It was meant to be a worldwide thing. Workers of the World Unite is one of the rallying cries from the Communist Manifesto you might have heard. And what it really meant was that the communists were not satisfied that only Russia and the countries nearby were communist. They actually had a very clear agenda that the whole world needed to be communist. It was supposed to be an international revolution. All the workers in all the countries were supposed to unite. So if the upper classes and nationalists and industry owners in different countries felt threatened, it was because they actually were. The communists were to some extent actually out to get them, or at least ideologically speaking. They actively worked to spread their ideology all over the world, and they made no secret of it either. The revolution was meant to go on, through country after country, and in one way it is quite understandable that you will get a counter-reaction to something as extreme as this, and you take what you have to work with, and what you might have to work with might end up being nationalism, and that works pretty good as a counter idea to to that all should have equal rights and uh, on the same be on the same social rank, if you instead highlight how Norwegians or Germans or whatever uh, have our very own special identity and even biological unique qualities, we do not want everybody to be equal because we believe that we are not. And here, this extra dimension comes into it, these theories about race that makes this so extra, extremely toxic. Quisling, he's very aware, and so is Adolf Hitler and many other in Germany at this time, that many of the Bolshevik revolution, they are actually of Jewish descent. So it is not really only an ideological attack on them, it is also a racial be or not to be for them. Remember what we said in the first episode, for some of these people, this seems a little bit like there is a horde of orc coming to invade and exterminate them, the noble elves, so to speak. As we said in the last episode, Quisling is at first not quite sure what side he's on. In one way, he has always been very convinced by racial theories and he has very strong nationalistic tendencies. But he is at first in some ways impressed by parts of the labor movement and does to some extent believe in some sort of revolution being needed in order to gain stability and social reforms. As historian hans Friedrich Dahl says, Quisling's ideas in the 20s very much circulate around melting together nationalism and socialism. Not unlike Adolf Hitler, that will of course create NSDAP or in English the National Socialist German Labour Party. Sorry, my German is not great. So, just the wording tells us something about how how the ideologies were seen as different at the time. When the Norwegian nationalist movement, the Fatherland League, is made in 1925 with Frick of Nansen as one of its backers, it is actually not a perfect fit for Quisling, as he will ironically be seen as being too far left for them, even though he will be involved in that movement later. When Quisling comes back to Norway in late 1929, things has changed slightly. He is more determined anti-communist now. He's more convinced about racial theories after reading up on them in Russia and being out of a job. He, he really is starting to get interested in politics, seeing this as a possible role for him. There are also many other people that do have an interest in him Getting into politics. So, in some ways, Quisling himself is, is seeking political influence, but in other ways, other people are in fact also pushing him towards it because they have their own agendas. At this time, there's a new political party called the Farmers' Party that is advocating that the farmers are the real backbone of the country and are placing themselves to the right politically, and they're gaining a lot of popularity quite fast. At the same time, this sense of urgency we talked about is strong among many in the right-wing elite. They feel that they need to create some sort of order into this political chaos with governments coming and going and with great social unrest as we briefly touched upon last time the newspaper uh, newspapers at this time were playing you know a huge role and they would very very much be biased chief editors were powerful and would have no qualms about using the papers for their own political agenda and some of them were quite actively looking for strong men to be able to keep stability in the country and on the other side, you had the Labour press that would see everything with the glasses of the unions and political left. Historian Obvar Heidel has some really good points about the political situation in his book, A Study in Treason. And he finds four key factors that were at this time uniting the political parties to the right, including the recently started Farmers' Party, quote, Even though the members of the different groups did not have the same political views, these four characteristics were valid with various degree of intensity within all the radical conservative groups. 1. Anti-democratic views with a lack of faith in traditional politicians and partisan politics. 2. Admiration for the totalitarian totalitarian movements in Italy and Germany. 3 racist tendencies with a specific focus on the Nordic race's superiority with an anti-Semitic undertone. Four, a general fear for revolutionary Marxism that was associated with the Labour Party. End quote. So, Hoedal uses the term radical conservative, and that might seem like a contradiction, but it was to highlight the frustration that was seen at the right at this time they wanted a radical change to turn the time back to what it had once been when quisling came back in 1929 he viewed himself perhaps just as much as a philosopher as a politician as we mentioned in the first episode, he had this slightly megalomaniac idea of a philosophy that would eradicate the need for religion or politics and everything, really. He called it the universism. While it never got published in his lifetime, his, his notes for it were published in 2006, he did actually self-publish a sort pamphlet in 1929 that had a not so... Uh, Easy title, Inhabited Worlds Exists Outside Earth and the Implications this has for our world today. So basically Quisling is writing that aliens are real and that it will change how we view our existence. In many ways this seems a little bit like some of his father's works. That would also be quite concerned with the universe and external slash supernatural forces in one way or another. And needless to say, these topics were quite far away from the day-to-day politics that was going on in Norway at this time. However, it is his friends, Pritz, that we have mentioned sometimes as his wingman and his friends for friend for over 11 years now, that really convinces him to get into politics. Long gone by now as he's flirting with the left, now he is using his time in Russia and later the Soviet Union to warn against communism and he wants a national gathering in Norway to unite against the radical left, among other things. And the constellation of the words national and gathering is in many ways crucial, as this will become the name of Quisling's political party later on. It is also worth it mentioning that this term was not anything new. It had been a topic in politics for a long time, partly as an argument against parliamentarism and basically against what was seen as a messy, messy democracy. In May 1930, Fritjof Nansen dies, which, you know, might have been a good thing actually for his legacy as he never got really tainted with a nationalist organisation that Quisling would. It's hard or impossible to know what role he would have ended up playing in politics in the coming years if he had stayed alive but as he was back in the fatherland league and more and more placing himself in the anti-communist camp of norwegian politics it's not completely unthinkable that he would have ended up hanging out with the wrong crowd so to speak but we will never really know his death was a huge deal in norway basically he was this small country's only international celebrity, and his funeral would be a huge public display as his casket would be pulled around or slow by horse cart, with thousands coming to look on, and there was a myriad of flowers and flags, and everyone basically would be there to pay their respects to this national icon. Uh, There were no religious ceremony uh, afterward, as he really wanted nothing of that and he demanded that he would be buried underneath a tree in his garden, a process that alone took six years to get approved. Uh, And his grave is still in the same garden at his former Oslo state. Quisling understood that he needed to take advantage of this uh, connection to Nansen. And less than two weeks after Nansen's death, Quisling would go out in a newspaper Tiedenstein declaring his candidacy to political position in the very top of Norway's political hierarchy. According to historian Heidel, Quisling would claim that Norway needed a new idol and that Nonsen had not accomplished all of his political tasks when he died. That according to Quisling were, quote, to liberate the fatherland from class struggle and partisan politics and to conduct a national gathering and restoration based on healthy political and economic principles, end quotes. He would further state the need to stagger the Bolshevik tendencies that he would see as running rampant in Norwegian cities and villages, and then finishes off by launching a 10-point list of politics that he claimed would be in the very spirit of Nansen. We don't know if they actually were. The two of them did not likely have any content during Nansen's last month's alive. Now, it is in these 10 bullet points in 1930 the Quisling really shows what would be his true political colors and it is something very similar to fascism and in some aspects he was likely directly inspired by Mussolini what is a little surprising reading this now is that he is so blatantly racist and that he is so (laughs) clear that he basically wanted to remove essential principles in a democracy. He would outright ban partisan politics in favour f- for a, quote, national politic, end quote, that would be, quote, strong but fair, end quote, but he would have ever not have a strong state-run industry eventually wanting to make the working class into capitalists, whatever that means. In this long article, he also strongly shows, uh, He's, uh, you know, super racism, and he talks about the Nordic race, saying that the Nordic countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and potentially Finland, should unite with their racial superiority to create a new European powerhouse. And he calls the Nordic race, quote, the most valuable of all the Earth's races, end quote. So just like Adolf Hitler and the Nazis would do, Quisling used the word Bolshevik as a code word or sometimes a synonym for something that is racially polluted and usually meaning the Jews. Uh, So while saying that Bolshevism is dangerous, he is basically also saying that Jews are dangerous. In this aspect, Quisling here is closer to what would become National Socialism in Germany than Fascism in Italy, as Mussolini at this point, or to any point to be fair, he is not as concerned with race as Hitler would be. It is really only in 1943 when Fascist Italy is totally dependent on Germany for its survival that Mussolini is forced to implement Nazi laws regarding Jews and so forth. As we have mentioned before, some of the Nazi doctrine would be to seek back to the sort of noble savages of old, the old Germanic tribes, and they would spend a lot of resources on more or less hopeless archaeological experiments, trying to find proof for their ideas about their ancestry, as they were having very high thoughts about how fantastic these early Germanic societies were. Some of this was also tied to the idea uh, of some sort of independent purity that was not really part of the Greco-Romano world and it makes a lot of sense that Mussolini was not as concerned by the purity of the Aryan race as were Quisling and Hitler as obviously most Italians are not blonde and blue eyed. Instead, Mussolini and the Italian fascists would be extremely proud of their Roman ancestry, seeing themselves as being the second Roman Empire. So what Quisling, Mussolini and Hitler did have in common in this sense is that they are looking back on history, wanting to restore their ancestral greatness. Quisling has the Vikings, Hitler, the Germanic tribes, and Mussolini, the Roman Empire. Radical conservatism, right? We briefly mentioned a newspaper called Tidenstein It means Sign of the Times or something similar. It does not exist today. But it was a well-read paper at the time. And the editor-in-chief was one of these editors that would desperately use his own paper to support opinions he himself had. Quisling's wingman, Pritz, knew this editor and... Uh, After his long political article, Right After Nonsense Death, that had in fact stirred up quite some debate and gotten a lot of attention, this editor was open to more contributions from Quisling. They agree that Quisling, having all this experience from the Soviet Union, would write up a long article series about the dangers in the East. Historian Hans Fredrik Dahl calls this article series an uh, extraordinary part of Norwegian publishing history, as Quisling gets every article printed in its full length, without any editing, no adding of pictures or illustrations, even the headline would be the same for every new article that came out week after week on the front page, and it was Russia and Us by Captain Bitkin Quisling. Quisling needed to take some time in writing this series that would go on from September to December, and that would later on be published as a book. According to Dahl, Quisling is actually doing a pretty decent job at describing the Soviet Union at this time, even though he, of course, warns against the dangers of communism. According to Dahl, he has some good insights. Quote, Especially good is this chapter about the Russian farmers. It is hard to find a more skilled introduction to the agricultural agricultural situation in the Stalin area of nineteen thirties than Quisling's. In contrast to the left wing experts that defended Stalin's politi- politics with the most naive arguments, Quisling realized clearly what social and economic catastrophe that was building up on the countryside. End quote. However, historian here he has a little bit different view on this, and he points out that his texts about Russia at this point is so full of blatant racism, they do have a clear agenda, he says, to warn people about the dangers of communism, perhaps more so than just being objective reports. And while this is, of course, written by a person on the opposite side of the political spectrum... It is kind of understandable that Quisling is is not a big fan, as we said. After all, he has experienced the Red Terror firsthand. He has lived in the country for years. And he has seen even cannibalism up close because of starvation, that is, because of the revolution. So it's a little hard to say that Quisling has no idea of what he's talking about. And it's really impossible to understand Quisling without understanding this intense hatred and perhaps fear for communism. And his completely distorted view of race comes into it. He, on top of that, confuses these racial views with the communism. Um, like in his uh, text about Russia, where he's calling the Bolshevik Revolution, quote, an Asian Oriental revolt against world civilization, end quote. As we said Quisling is at this time, for all his terrible views of human races, a rather intelligent man. He has a military mindset, he's mathematically brilliant, although socially awkward, but getting an overview and analysing a situation like this was something that he was pretty good at, and he's actually not a terrible writer. Quisling's detailed articles about Russia and the dangers in the East got him famous, and not quite coincidentally, 1930 was an election year, so him writing this from a position of authority was basically pouring cold water in the veins of the labour movement. They saw this as propaganda and tried to combat his articles with their own defences of the Soviet Union. But they did not succeed, and the election of 1930 was a big setback for the Labour Party, on which they would blame negative propaganda from the rights. In researching this series, I picked up quite a few different sources, but one of the books that I have been the most happy with is the Diaries of a Man Called Johann Nygoschewald. I didn't really know what to expect but starting reading it felt a little like striking gold because what he offers is a view of Quisling and his action from a contemporary viewpoint. He's a first-hand source we get in real time, so to speak. Date by date, he will describe political life in the 30s, and Quisling's name will start to pop up a lot. Now, Nijgorsvold is a famous person himself. He's from the Labour Party, so he is, of course, a political opponent of Quisling. And it's important for our story because he will become a prominent politician in the Norwegian Parliament, and he will also become Prime Minister when the war breaks out in Norway in 1940. He hardly writes anything in his diary in the year of 1930, but he does comment on the poor election result and does blame it on the so called propaganda. Quote, the most important reason was that the right, with their agitation, managed to frighten people so that this became a real panicky election. End quote. And according to Hedl, the 1930 election led the Norwegian Labour Party to become more sober and reform oriented, leading them away from the politics of Soviet Russia. So in many ways, this might be a blessing in disguise for them, as they will become the most powerful political party in Norway for many decades after this. In our story, it is still the end of 1930, and Quisling's article about Russia had been getting a lot of attention. His strong anti-communism is accompanied by ideas about a Nordic alliance that will combat the Red Threat, of course a theory that has a lot of racism incorporated in it. When confronted uh, with that the Nordic and Norwegian population were tiny compared to those of the rest of the world, Quisling simply stated that this is about quality, not the quantity. At the same time, there are powerful people pushing for Quisling to continue getting more and more into politics, and his never-resting wingman Pritz is working hard for Quisling to gain more influence. In addition to a couple of powerful newspaper editors that is backing Quisling and his ideas about anti-communism, This new Nordic alliance that would not only encompass Scandinavia, but later Berlin, the United States, and the Netherlands, and perhaps finally Germany, to create a common front against communism was one of his prime ideas. As we've said, there is no lack of ambition with Quisling. There are also several business leaders that are working behind the scenes to get someone like Quisling into power. They are fed up with the instability of the 1920s and the workers demanding more rights, so they want a strong man to keep things under control. And Quisling is one of several people speaking that same language. His more racist and megalomaniac ideas about creating new unions of nations is getting little attention. It is the anti-communism and law and order kind of attitude that really is in focus. In the campaign of 1930, he would hold some speeches on behalf of this former mentioned Farmers' Party, in addition to getting involved again with the Fatherland League, that he has now much more in sync with, and all of a sudden, Quisling is becoming a political player to be reckoned with. And in 1931, Quisling gets his big, big breakthrough. The political chaos would continue after the 1930 election, as the different parties had trouble cooperating, so the old government continued until they, in spring 1931, were finally forced to step down. It then fell to the before-mentioned Farmers' Party to take power and to form a new government. We've mentioned Pritz a few times, Quisling's wingman. He's a person that really continued just to pull so many strings for, for Quisling in his rise to power. The new Prime Minister is a man called Peter the He is perhaps not a man that is viewed very kindly by history. And it's safe to say that he wasn't the best a politician Norway's ever had. When picking his new government, his choice of Minister of Defence surprisingly fell on Wittgen Quisling, even though Quisling was not even an official member of the Farmers' Party. And all of this, or a lot of this at least, has to be attributed to Pritz pulling the strings in the background, always lobbying on behalf of Quisling. Actually, when Colster was asked why he appointed Quisling a man that he didn't even know, he replied, he has written such a great book about Russia, end quote. So there, there you have it. And Quisling, he has now gone from being a man very few people knew in Norway to a Minister of Defence in roughly one and a half year. And of course, with power comes attention and desire from your opponents to take you down. Reading the labour man Nygoshvold's diary is interesting in several ways, because unlike whistling, that really does not at all believe in what we would call basic democracy and hates partisan politics, Nygoshvold is an experienced and clever politician that seems to treat politics as a chess game. He writes more about political tactics than big ideological beliefs. In that way, he is the opposite of Quisling. While Quisling is dreaming of Nordic unions with racial unity, Nigoschval writes about the political play in parliament and who does what and what errors they make and what tactics they are imposing. Nigoschval does not seem like a dreamer at all, actually. He seems pretty much emotionally detached from his work as a politician. It's actually almost comical how he in his diary first describes a constitutional crisis in the country and technical maneuvering before going on talking about the weather or how much weight he has lost or gained. So, for him, he seems this right wing Quisling coming in from Norway into a weak government that basically only has support of a minority of the representatives in parliament, and that reluctantly had to take power because the old government was forced to, to surrender. In many ways, This is a rather satisfactory position for the Labour Party after their poor election, because they can sit on the sidelines, constantly attacking a weak government with a weak power base, struggling to keep control of large events that are more or less outside of their control, such as the international economic crisis. The Farmers' Party will quite soon regret appointing Quisling, and in the beginning not so much because of what he does, but because of what he had done in the past. In the first episode, we mentioned that he, in the years between 24 and 25, had turned to the radical left, calling for arming the working classes and creating quote-unquote red brigades. Now, this obviously will come back to bite him, as all his flirts with the radical left a few years before are now being written about and ridiculed in the Labour press. Nikos writes about this too, quote, I think that the Farmers' Party has already become somewhat concerned about the attacks from the Labour press in their Minister of Defence, Mr. Quisling. The thing is that the same Mr. Quisling, that in many ways is supposed to be a skilful man, also try to offer his services to our party for a handsome compensation. End quote. And he goes on. The Labour press has already discussed him over a couple of articles. For me, he is a fascist and a Fatherland League member. End quote. And then, again, rather comically, he goes on talking about the weather and other very mundane things. And it is right that Quisling had become a member of the Fatherland League at this point after his initial doubts about the organisation. In many ways, the 1920s and 1930s seems like a time period where so many societies had still not really come to grips with the you know, full industrialization and the role capitalism works in such a society. There were many strikes, economic chaos, wild theories about wealth and capital... In Russia after the revolution, money almost became worthless due to hyperinflation, and it more or less resulted in a money economy collapsing, resulting in a bunch of state-run companies, uh, some of those companies only consisting of one person, owing each other's various moneyless credits because basically money wasn't worth anything. And if you were a normal person looking for political answers in Europe at this time, there really does not seem to be many great horses to bet on. On the one side, you had radical revolutionary communists, and on the other side you had autocratic racist fascists, and then in the middle you had some shaky democracy that never seemed to get anything done. There are Actually, many different shades of both fascism and communism at this point. So just saying fascist or communist might be a little bit misguiding, but you you get the general idea. Quisling was prior to his appointment as Minister of Defence very much into joining or creating new organisations. And Pritz and him had several initiatives going on that basically had more or less the same agenda. Anti communism and that the Aryan races and especially the Nordics should unite in opposition without any partisan pro- uh, politics but with a strong but fair leadership to the benefit of all. That would, was how they would frame it anyway. We will not go into a lot of detail about Quisling's time as Minister of Defence but we will discuss a few things because it will be a quite eventful time. First and foremost, it is worth noting that such an extreme person like Quisling, that had gone very public very often with a clearly racist message in his articles about Russia, could get into such a position in the first place. He did, as we understand, get a lot of stick from the leftist press, but as we said, both the press and the political climate were so polarised at the time, so his own political partners, they would defend him seemingly no matter what. When extremism and racism and disbelief in democracy doesn't get any consequences for people in power, that's something that's really worth paying attention to. But that is something that we've learned in hindsight. Anyways, Quisling is getting a lot of public attention from both sides, and he's very clearly dividing opinion just from the start. He's still known to be extremely silent in meetings with the government and when they are assembling the military in the summer of 1931 to quell rioters, he is getting the blame, although it has later been known that he also, in this matter, was extremely passive. This is the sort of weird, awkward, social clumsiness we we talked a lot about in the first episode. And he really does seem out of place in this government He's uh, look, also looking really uncomfortable in pictures and unlike an Adolf Hitler that at this time would love to pose for the camera doing Sieg Hiles, Quisling in some images from this time, he looks like a frightened deer caught in the headlights. Quisling is clumsy and not only in social settings, but in many ways in politics as well. And after all, he wasn't a seasoned politician either. He's not a new gosh for that carefully weighs and plays his hand. He really does not seem to have very much in between silence and full frontal attack. It's either one or the other. He is, in lack of a better word, extreme. The controversies will continue to surround Quisling in 1932. What is known as the Pepper assault happens then, a case where Quisling was attacked in his office by a mysterious man, allegedly throwing pepper in his eyes, blinding him so he could escape. And this event will again divide the press. The leftist press will ridicule it and suggest that this is a made-up plot to gain sympathy, while the right-wing papers will defend Quisling. According to Historian Dahl, the attack most likely happened though, likely by someone that was after some documents, but we don't really know. What is most important about this event is that it will raise a big debate over Quisling's credibility. Was he lying or wasn't he? If true, why couldn't the police sort anything out? Nikos was one of those that were pushing him hard in public debates, and it culminated in an unexpected attack back from Quisling, where he, while addressing the parliament, claimed that he had proved that the Labour Party was in cahoots with the Soviet communists to take over the country in an armed revolution, and he was allegedly holding up and beating his leather briefcase while saying this. I can just imagine how that would have looked like. He also importantly claimed that this had gone on for some uh, time and that he could also prove this. And this was, you know, really no bigger secret that the Labour Party up until 1923 had been collabor- uh, collaborating with the Communist Party in Russia, but then they went the, their sever- separate ways. Uh, but what was the big problem for Quisling was that it became apparent, well, pretty immediately that if he was the minister of defense and he really had intel about attempts to overthrow the government in a violent socialist revolution why had he waited until he was personally attacked by the opposition to make these plans known you know that would in a way make him sort some sort of accomplice right and the left. Immediately demanded to see what proof Quisling had, and a committee was put down to review what what proof he he might have. Neguschwal, calm as always, described the debate where Quisling's special counterattacks comes in his diary, alongside his normal talk about diets, weight loss, and weather reports. Quote, I attacked Minister Quisling in the debate and said, among other things, that if the police could not soon find any clarity to the story about his assault, people would either think it was a private brawl or that the whole thing was made up. The day after he went on the attack, in a large speech he accused both the Labour Party, the Unions and the Communist Party for treason, armament and to have ordered an armed rebellion. He had documents that proved this, he claimed. I immediately requested that these documents would be sent to the Parliament. My suggestion was unanimously accepted. After three weeks of waiting, the Parliament got a package that weighed eight kilos, mostly old stories and newspaper clippings. These documents are now sent to a special committee of eight men. End quote. does not at all seem shaken or concerned about this, even though this event is covered by him in his diary slightly in retrospect. He wrote quite infrequently in his diary. The next passages in his book, they are mostly filled with other things before he about five to six weeks later states that there is still no news from the Quisling Committee, but that he expects that they will find some way out of it for Quisling, which they did, as the political right had house majority. So what they basically ended up saying was that the minister had his words intact, but other than that, they tried to put a lead on it and move on without any further consequences. Quisling would, however, look at this as a victory, but he was likely the only one. For the other party members, his rather erratic display and the chaos that followed for him to save face was just another unwelcome distraction, because there were no such plans that he had described, basically, so this entire committee was little less than a rescue operation to save the minister. At this point, it is worth noting that the Prime Minister that appointed Quisling, called Star, had died of natural causes. A new man called Hun Said had come in and really wanted to kick Quisling out of the government. But at this time, the extreme Quisling had polarised opinion also within the Farmers' Party, and he had, was proving pretty hard to get rid of. He was a man that it was really difficult to remain indifferent to, and he had both fierce opponents and fierce supporters. And while there are many ways of excusing many of Quisling's words and actions up until this point, the next thing I actually find very difficult to excuse, and it shows us how scrupulous Quisling has become by this point. And he, he, he seems to have really hardened during his last years in Russia. His racism is, is more rampant and his actions are too. What happens at this time is that there is a senior army officer that is giving a speech where he is encouraging peace and pacifism and believes that the Soviet Union and socialism is the way forward for a peaceful Europe. At this point, the left mostly wanted to cut back on military budgets, while the right did not want that, and the Labour Party supports this officer and what he says. And here Quisling thinks that he has some sort of leverage, but he misinterprets the fine art of political fencing once again and goes all in. Basically what he does is to bring a bazooka to a boxing match, not understanding that it is a difference between fainting and giving one another a bloody nose, but a completely different thing is to try to kill off your opponent in the worst possible way. He does not understand or want to understand the game the others are playing, basically. He writes a justification for why he thinks this military officer and the leadership of the Labour Party should all be tried and sentenced for treason in the courts. And he does also this without consulting anyone else in government. Seems a little harsh, though, doesn't it, to sentence people to prison for life just for supporting pacifism in peacetime? It is really a move that is hard to find any sympathy, but it becomes clear that for Quisling now, anything goes. There are no rules no more. He has no qualms trying to literally put his political opponents in jail, and he's here really starting to show off his anti-democratic side. Quisling now has become a real danger for free society. And like all people that are, They will of course claim the exact opposite. They will claim that they are in fact saving free society and Quisling is very concerned with what he perceives as a free and safe society as long as it has absolutely no communists and preferably no Jews or non-Aryan people and as long as he can have supreme power. So this episode that was yet another completely surprising attack on the Labour Party meets even reluctant criticism from the right-wing press, as they point out that such an act would very much go against free speech. Quisling is enraged by this and sends angry replies to this right-wing paper. The left, of course, ridicules it quite predictably. And this is also a problem, to be fair, because if you always ridicule or criticise everything your opponent does... It's really hard for your readers to understand when it's really serious and when it's only, you know, normal bickering going on. It's Wolf-Wolf, right? Quisling's attempts on jailing his political opponent on a, you know, really, really, really weak basis does not gain any real support besides from some other really extreme groups. But I think that if the fascism alarm bells have not gone off yet at this time, they might never. What's more is that he clearly tries to get the new Prime Minister, Hun Said, out of power. And Hun Zaid himself tries to keep Quisling out repeatedly. So they have this tug of war, basically. Hun Said, he he's not like his predecessor, he's not a great politician either, to be fair. And the two of them really seem like two small children in some of their arguments. At one point, Quisling meets up to a conference with all the ministers there, and he has prepared this long list of accusations, demanding Hütensay to step down immediately. But to his amazement, none of the other members have anything to say to this anymore. They just listen quietly to what Quisling has to say, and then goes back to their normal business as nothing had happened. Obviously just fed up with, with, with both men, really. So what is now glaringly obvious, and what we can learn from this, is that Quisling at this time, he's, you know, without any doubt, he's seeking supreme political power for himself. And he has also very little of a moral compass guiding him in doing so. And this might sound strange, but this is really the point of no return for Quisling, I think, because this is the time I feel that his historical reputation is beyond rescue. If we just want to get a little bit philosophical, people always do have a choice, right? Quisling had, despite all his potential diagnosis and weird upbringing, choices several times during his life. But when he has gotten this far, and he's actually trying with all his might to bring down democracy in his home country, which is what he actually would have done had he gotten his way, then I feel there's really no going back for him. In many ways, I have some weird sympathy for this man after having read loads of what he has written. You know, this grown man that is still this shy, weird, intelligent kid in his mind. But for me, this episode where he seriously wants to jail his opponents, who what is nothing that is really, you know, there's nothing really. This is a deal breaker. You can, to some extent, try to excuse the racism on The Times and, you know, many other people thought this way and he was probably thought a lot of this in school and so forth. As we know, also Churchill himself was quite racist at times, but we really can't judge historical people on today's knowledge and values. But for Gwisling's part, it through his actions at this point becomes really clear that he do want to go in a totalitarian direction, and to be honest, he does not at all try to hide it that much either. Ever since the end of the union with Sweden, Norway had talked about national unity, uh, and Also, before finding himself in government, Quisling, he was not, you know, he was never really a huge fan of democracy. He did not understand or did not want to understand. But first and foremost, it seems like he had decided that democracy was not a good form for government. Because for Quisling, it just seems that democracy seemed to stand in the way and be a hindrance for the great Norwegian nation and stand in way of strong rule. And, you know, in his opinion, this strong rule was exactly what the country needed. The Farmers' Party government was built on a really weak foundation, as we said, and it was probably always going to crumble, as it did not really have majority behind it in Parliament. And towards the end of February 1933, there was little left to save, and the government was being forced to step down. Quisling on his side expressed, from a debate in Parliament, relief of being stripped of his responsibilities, uh, to refer again to Nikos diary. Quote, the purpose was likely that he would hold a great speech, but my goodness, what nonsense it was. He was repeatedly interrupted by laughter, and his own colleagues in government either left the room or riddled with shame. He was actually happy, he said, that he now could leave because now it was his turn to travel through the country to rile people up. But he would return, this he repeated time and time again with a threatening voice, and then he would demand a government with a mandate to act without anyone being able to interfere. End quote. It almost been reading English, well, it almost seems that Quisling is this comical character to many of his current politicians but as we will find out his his threats will become serious enough later on and this kind of extremism can seem quite hilarious from the outside but remember that both Mussolini and Hitler undoubtedly had some very strange mannerisms that could provoke laughter if you haven't seen them yet, you need to gurgle Adolf Hitler's photo shoots and you'll see some really strange photos of him posing, practicing for his speeches. I think if history can learn as anything, though, it is that when someone challenged democracy, it is really well worth taking notice of regardless of the weirdness that might come with it. We will have a say that the Norwegian democracy at this time is more stable than it was in Germany prior to the Nazis winning the election, as all this is happening at about the same time in 1933. Or perhaps only Hitler was a much greater politician than Quisling. This is also obviously an option. Anyways, according to historian Odvar Heidel Quisling, he's likely very much inspired with what is happening in both Italy and Germany at this time. And he even goes as far as starting using nasty expressions like blood and soil uh, in one of his public texts at the time. In German, this is a Blut und Borden, referring to the pure blood is tied to the land, very nationalistic, in other words. Quisling was at this time extremely active in the country's newspapers, suggesting his new form of rule inspired by the National Socialists in Germany and Fascists in Italy. Historian Heydahl writes this in his book quote, Quisling had noted what political and economical conditions that had made it possible for foreign dictators to grab power, and now he wanted to exploit the same instability in Norway. What the country needed was first and foremost men, he declared. He suggested setting parliamentary rule aside in favor of a new national government made up of dedicated national-oriented people without any ties to political parties that would be allowed to work without disruption for a period of three years. After his opinion, parliamentarism was clearly not suited to solve the problems since the partisan politicians were too prone to make compromises and incapable of following coherent plans in a logical way, end quote. And by the way, I should perhaps know that these are my translation from the Norwegian edition. I know this book is also available in English, so check it out for yourself if you like. It's really good. Anyways, it's hard to know. Quisland's real intentions here, besides from obviously trying to install himself as the country's dictator, this much seems clear at this point, but how can you really separate what is genuine good intentions on behalf of a country in political chaos and what is just pure lust for power? Kuzling is quite consistent in his use for national unity, and seems very convinced that he as a military man, with what he sees as great knowledge of international events and history, is the perfect candidate to reinsert order and stability in a divided country. If I were to make a very basic stab at this, what Would perhaps point against him actually having some genuine feelings for the nation based on his ideology, it would be that he previously had tried to flirt with the same Labour movement in the leftist leaders that he only a few years later wanted to put in jail for treason, just making him seem like a really power-hungry opportunist. But on the other hand, he does also seem to have a quite consistent line, even from his younger years, that he believes that what is best for all is a strong leadership based on conservative values. But I suspect that these things, you know, idealism and personal lust for power, very quickly gets confused and mixed together in one's mind, especially if you have strong narcissistic tendencies. And it does not at all seem like Quisling at any point stopped up to think... Is this really what is the best for my country, or am I now only doing what is best for me? We'll try not to dive too deep into all the details of Norwegian politics at this time. So, long story short, Quisling's ties to the Farmers' Party will be broken, as he will lose the power struggle to the before-mentioned ex-Prime Minister Hunsait, but he is not at all finished in politics, even though he at this point really do have very little foundation. He still has several of these influential newspaper editors on his side, in addition to a few other influential people that sees Quisling as a different kind of politician, you know, a kind of a breath of fresh air, someone that uh, talks straight and is not afraid to take leadership and promises great things for the country. Uh, I think that this is unfortunately something we can see signs of also in today's politics. Voters get frustrated with a back and forth that is an inevitable part of democratic processes and turns to seemingly strong men with simple answers. Anyway, there are at this point many right-wing and nationalistic organisations at this time. We've mentioned the Fatherland League previously, but there were many others as well. Quisling's wingman Pritz hes again essential for setting up things, and they end up starting the politically par- a political party called, as Quisling had talked so much about before, National Union, or in Norwegian the name is National Samling, abbreviated to NS, and we will from here on continue calling this party by the name NS, even though it does not stand for National Socialism as Hitler's NSDAP, just so you are aware. The formation of N.S. also happens in 1933, a quite eventful year in many ways, and it's also an election year in Norway, and it's the first election Quisling's party will take part in. Though calling N.S. a political political party at this point might not be completely accurate. or Well, according to Quisling, it will never be accurate because he didn't like partisan politics, remember? So for him, N.S. would... Uh, not be about a political party, it was about uniting the country, so more a movement really, kind of an umbrella that would fathom all the other and kind of rise above petty politics. And in addition to all the normal nationalism and focus on the Nordic race, he was very much in line with Mussolini's fascism, in that he wanted a new national institution that would take over many of the tasks of the parliament basically reducing the parliament's power and giving the government the mandate to dissolve the parliament should it wish it, basically breaking down the system of sharing of power and the entire system of checks and balances. Quisling seems to confuse both himself and the voters running for office with a political party that was not really a political party, but nevertheless they managed to establish some sort of organisation across the country, even though quite amateurish to begin with. According to historian Heudel, most of the early NS members had that in common, that they admired Hitler's movement in Germany and Mussolini's in Italy, but that this was in fact something they shared with more or less the entire political right at this point. Remember that the news of concentration camps and mass harassment and of persecution of entire groups of people in society was not yet known, at least not to that extent. And don't get me wrong, there were plenty of people warning against fascism and Nazism also at this point, so it wasn't like nobody understood that this could get out of hand. But for a lot of normal people, these things were not so easy to see. And as a side note, the first concentration camp in Germany, Dachau, was established as early as 1933 to detain political opponents. I'm not sure how well known this was outside of Germany at the time. A lot of the NS members were young people that wanted to change, and Quisling was already a celebrity at this point. Everyone knew who he was after his controversies as defence So, uh, I hate to say but it, but it reminds you a little bit of other uh, famous politicians at this time, doesn't it? So, someone that sort of seems to make headlines uh, no matter what they do. Uh, even though people love them or hate them, they, they just get a lot of attention. So... Basically, you had to have lived under a rock if you didn't uh, already know who Quisling was. Uh, and even though, sort of, not all PR is good PR, at least it worked in a way such that he was a person that was hard to to remain indifferent to. Unlike Hitler, though, that of course won his election in 1933 in Germany and used the democratic process as a means to destroy the entire German democracy in record time. Quisling would not have the same fortune in his election the same year, and this had several problems first of all, it was a party that had been founded the very same year, so it was only a few months old. It did not have great finances and even though they had support from some powerful editors the the party did not have their own propaganda tool, meaning that they didn't have their own newspaper so that the other main political parties, uh, they had that to a smaller or larger extent. At the same time, Quisling was, as we have already seen in many instances, not a very flexible human being. I think Hitler was more able to adapt and does not seem as rooted in all his principles as Quisling were. What Quisling was. Quisling was not really pragmatic in the same sense. It, it seems to be a little bit tied to his personality and how he acted socially. He was not great at adapting to change uh, or changing circumstances. And he spent a lot of his campaign in '33 attacking other political parties to the right for not wanting to collaborate with him instead of getting across a clear message of being an alternative to the ever-growing labor movement ending up with uh, that almost no one it wanted to collaborate with with NS and it's also very much worth noting that also the other large political parties to the right they they started to see where this was going and they were clearly opposed to totalitarianism so so Quisling slowly became a bit of a piranha even though a couple of smaller parties to the right had some collaboration going on with him the election of thirty-three was first and foremost the Labour Party's election. They had found a much less radical leftist path that appealed to the masses and they increased their part of the vote from 31 to 40%. NS did not make a significant impact, even with Quisling's celebrity status, and only got right above 2% of the vote. So there was no Hitler effect, so to speak. The Nazi success in Germany did not rub off on Quisling, and he had to taste defeats. As we've used... Nikosvold's diary as a reference and a time witness seen from a political opponent, he exits, uh, quote unquote, our story here, at least his diary does, because he really does not mention Quisling again, which is at hand proof that Quisling after '33 had become much less significant having stepped down as defence minister and starting a new party that never really had a chance in the '33 election, but also as Nikosvold more or less stopped keeping his diary. But regardless of Niko willingness to keep a diary, it's symptomatic in the sense that for Quisling, that had these great plans, he would see a real downturn in his fortunes from this point. While the next years there are less action-packed for Quisling and NS, we will have ever spend a little bit of time describing the ideological development that occurred before we will move closer to the real hardcore action being the start of World War II. As if it wasn't apparent already, we start to see the Nazification of NS really coming into play during 1934, even though Quisling denied that he was, in fact, just ripping off similar movements that already existed on the continent. A sign that is never particularly good when it comes to political movements is when people start to wear uniforms, and this was something that NS did in 34. Khaki collars they used that looked a lot like the Nazi brown shirts or the storm-up tie-along that we briefly mentioned in the previous episode. Quisling claimed that the khaki look and feel was so that the members could use it both for work and for sport. Even though he would openly refuse any copycat activity, he actually wrote this in a letter quote. I'm sending you the political programme of National Sambling NS. You will understand that NS is a similar movement to the National Socialism in Germany. End quote. So obviously he was very much aware of who he was looking up to. And it really didn't stop there either. NS in 34 also imported the Nazi salutes, although they would use a weird variant of the Sieg Heil, where the R and slightly out to the right and not straightforward, and Quisling would very soon also become uh, their Fuhrer in the region, or the Führer is the same word as Fuhrer in German, obviously meaning leader. So there was little doubt that there had risen this kind of cult around Quisling, and his so called genius was being praised by many in the party. So there was no doubt that this was a clear steal also from Nazism in Germany through and through. Ennis would also get their own symbol, like the swastika, it was a golden cross in a circle, brown background. You know, it didn't even looks a little bit like the swastika. Even though anti Semitism and Jews were not explicitly mentioned in the political program of NS in 34, Quisling's words were basically the politics of the party. Uh, and you know, of course Quisling being a lifelong racist he was, he continued to talk and write about the Germanic race's super, uh, superiority. In the first episode, I said that one could perhaps argue that Quisling was an even worse racist than Hitler, and just to broaden that out a little, what I meant was that Quisling from a young age, he's very vocal about believing in racial hierarchy, and he was being surprisingly public and clear about this very early on, repeatedly, and why do not in any way doubt Hitler's genuine racism? It seems to be some pragmatism to Hitler that Quisling doesn't have. He doesn't seem to use this racism only as a political tool to create fear for, quote-unquote, the others. He surely believed that, for example, Jews must physically be physically removed from Europe. Uh, otherwise, you know, things won't work out. He believes this. He will say that he will prefer them all to be gathered in an island. He would suggest Madagascar. Uh, but it is not a competition, of course, of who's most racist. Both had what most people today see as a gruesome view of humans uh, that they perceive to be different uh, from them. <laughs> There is a book that we will reference a great deal from the war years later that is hugely interesting. It's called Three Steps Behind, and it's written by a man called Pierre de Yard, as late as in 2006 when he was a very, very old man, and he died a couple of years later. Yard was Quisling's personal assistant for the entire war, and went to Germany with Quisling on a few occasions, also meeting Hitler himself. And while he defends Quisling in most cases, the one thing that he is really, really critical of is Quisling's view of Jews. He said that Quisling could have respect for individual Jews, but he said that the quote-unquote Jewish problem was the one thing that he just could not accept. Uh, but we will hear about more about this absolutely fascinating story later, because it gives us such great insight to how a young person could be entangled in Nazism, and... In addition, it's a great first-hand source for how Quisling acted during the war. And it's really worth noting that all members of NS at this time, they, not all, everybody had, the, you know, the same sinister intentions. Remember that the really bad side of Nazism were not that apparent for people at the time. And that for many, the appeal was to create peace by removing the social classes, creating unity across a very much divided political, uh, or politically divided country. So, and also in Germany at this time, there are many sort of accounts of young people flocking to the Nazi movement that would never have done so had they known what they really were a part of. And while some scholars might disagree, it's very hard not to see Endes as a, as a Nazi party, even, even from as early as 1934, because so many key ingredients are already in place. For example, they wanted the one party rule, removing power from the parliament, creating a totalitarian state. They had a person Karl built around the quote unquote genius Quisling, even naming him Führer. They had a militaristic organization with uniforms. They would also start their own youth organization, similar to Hitler Jugend. They had Nazi greetings and positive views on extreme nationalism. They had a clear anti-Semitic agenda and clearly believed that their race was was superior. They were strongly opposed to communism. Quisling already had demonstrated that he was more than willing to imprison political opponents and so forth. And while there is, of course, possible to find things that are not the same, SNS had become, in my opinion at least, a fully-fledged Nazi party even at this early stage there were ever not a united party at this point. Uh, As is quite typical with young political movements, they tend to go off in many different directions at once, as did the Nazi party in Germany. And as we discussed in the first episode, the so-called Night of the Long Knives uh, was about rooting out and killing off people with a different view of of national socialism than Hitler had and other core members of the party had. And uh, it was uh, not as quite as violent in the Norwegian NS, but anti-Semitism and the so-called Jewish question was central to disagreements in that party in thirty-five and thirty-six, especially. And while Quisling, he had, you know, as we have said so many times, been very vocal racist more or less his entire life. Not all were so concerned with this. Historian Hans Frederick Dahl says that. Quisling's wingman, Pritz, wasn't really an anti-Semite at all, so it's quite easy to see that this issue co- could create some trouble. A lot of these other people, they were much more uh, concerned with this sort of uh, national union, this sort of uh, stability thing, than they were with this racial thing that they sort of seemed to have almost ignored a little bit. Quisling... Uh, on his head, said that the Jewish question was so big and problematic that it could not be ignored, but as a really, really weird compromise, Ennis decided that they should not be against the individual Jew as such, but rather against Jews as a group. From Quisling's point of view, there there was quite a lot of domination, Double communication going on. On the one hand, he would say that he would not want to encourage individual racial hatred just because of him pointing out what he saw as a fact, that the Jewish conspiracy was taking over the world, and at the same time, he would continue blaming Jews for various societal problems and conflicts, even stating that fascist Italy's attack and invasion of Ethiopia in thirty-five was due to, quote... The game of international Jewish imperialism. End quote. And just how Mussolini's attack on an African country could have anything to do with what Quisling saw as Jews is really beyond me. But it is not a completely unknown rhetoric to blame your own or your own allies' acts of violence on others. So this might just be another example of this. The Jewish question did create problems for Ennis, however, as many members up until this had in fact been Christians and they had a bit of a problem accepting that anti-Semitism would be a big part of the party program. So Ennis lost some members uh, on this from the religious conservative contingent. As a side note, it is interesting to see just Nazism's view on religion, because Nazism—they never seemed to figure out how they would cope with Christianity in general. Uh, although they were mostly hostile for Communism, you know, it was easy. Karl Marx had stated that religion was opium for the people, so or something like that, and basically meaning that religion was deluding people's minds—a view that worked wrote, wrote really well for Stalin, as it basically was a tool to to strip the religious institutions for power and influence, but. Uh, For the Nazis, it was not that easy. One attempt within Nazi Germany to come up with a religious solution was to create their own Nazi church, which seems almost comical today. Uh, There are some obvious problems when Christianity and Nazism meet, of course. One of the most obvious thing being that Jesus was in fact Jewish, a clear no-go for proper Nazis. So in, in Germany, they tried to establish a new kind of Christianity as an alternative to Lutheranism and Catholicism that they called positive Christianity. And this really weird form of faith portrayed Jesus as an Aryan, and it basically cut out all of the Old Testament. One of the men behind this Nazi religion, he's a guy called Alfred Rosenberg, and he's seen as one of the key Nazi ideologists, and he will very soon play a big role as our story of Quisling will start to tie more and more into Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. Rosenberg was a little similar to Quisling in the way that he was a dream of sorts. He was concerned perhaps more with the great ideas and the practicalities of implementing strategies, but he was, was really important for large parts of the Nazi ideology. Swimming back to Norway and 1936, the anti communism of NS got a new focal point as Lev Trotsky comes to Norway as a political refugee. As we mentioned briefly in the first episode, Quisling actually met Trotsky in Russia in 1918 when Trotsky was war minister during the revolution, but a lot had happened to them both during the past 18 years. Trotsky, he had gone from being one of the key members of the communist revolution to being gradually pushed out of the communist party before finally being excluded by Stalin and then forced to leave the Soviet Union. And it was on his travels seeking sanctuary that he ended up in Norway in thirty six, when the now prime minister Nikosval, as Thorir we have quoted, welcomed him. Of course, this was, as one can imagine, a really big deal for Quisling and NS, uh, that ferociously fought to get internationally famous communist Trotsky out of Norway. The arrival of Trotsky played perfectly into the NS worldview, as Trotsky was himself Jewish and with him all of a sudden appearing in Norway, that showed the NS voters that the communist threat was very real and tying communism and Jews even tighter together was perfect for Quisling that said, quote, 90% of those behind Marxism are Jews, whole Jews or half Jews, end quote. Harry he also has a reference to the Nazi Nuremberg laws where Hitler's regime tried to define what this quote unquote dangerous enemy really was and how one should characterize who was in fact Jewish and not, ending up with bizarre characteristics, characteristics such as half Jews, etc. What was even more convenient for Ennis was that the Norwegian Labour Party after a while surrendered under pressure from Moscow to contain Trotsky, as he at this point was seen as an enemy of the state. So for this Ennis was this was the proof that the uh, Norwegian left were, in fact, more puppets of the communist regime. that They were still in Cahoots, so to speak, because they were taking orders from from the Soviet Union. So eventually, uh, the Norwegian government they they didn't have balls really to keep Trotsky anymore, and he was expelled from Norway, ending up in Mexico, all places where he would live until nineteen forty, before being assassinated by a Soviet agent killing him in a rather brutal fashion by running an ice pick through his skull. 1936 was again election year, and if you have paid extremely close attention, you might have figured that they come every three years at this point. But 1936 would be the last time that this happened. There had been brewing a reform for quite some time to prolong the period to four years, and this would happen after 36, something that Queensland will try to attack as an illegal seizure of power. Prior to the election, we, we, we start to see... Uh, some more or less direct German intervention when the NS newspaper that they had now managed to establish and they call it Fritfolk, meaning the Free Folk I hope this doesn't offend some of you Game of Thrones fans out there but they had realised that they needed their own propaganda tool and they started this newspaper and it didn't go too well but in thirty six, they do start to receive a great deal of money from German interests keeping them keep going All in all, both NS and Quisling personally, they had a terrible economy at this time. They were dependent on monetary support. And remember that Quisling was really still without a job. He had gotten a request for promotion to major in the military approved some years before, but he was not employed as such in the military and only received a small pension. So they even at one point pawned his desk in his apartment because he was so, so strapped for cash at this time. Anyways, he also made some rather unsuccessful attempts at selling artwork he had bought during his time in Russia, and it seems that he tried to buy various valuables at bargain prices, basically exploiting the hunger victims, and was trying to sell them on at this point, but had little success. It should be mentioned that also... Italian fascists were interesting in keeping ties to NS before they finally in 37 surrendered them to the Germans reporting back to Rome that basically their German ideas about the Germanic race's superiority had now won them over and that they now received strong donations from Berlin. So in many ways Quisling and NS they already at this early stage were more or less in the pockets of Hitler both in an ideological sense but also in a strictly financial sense. The election in 36 was yet another disaster for Ines. They actually had slightly fewer votes than they had in 33 when they had just started. And despite Quisling and others driving around the country in their own propaganda buses, trying to rile people up, as he had said when stepping down as Minister of Defence, it became quite clear that the Nazis in Norway were not capable to win a democratic election the way Hitler had done in Germany in 33. It is worth noting that Quisling was a terrible speaker compared to Hitler. According to Hans Dahl, the excitement was usually greater before than after Quisling speeches, whereas Hitler, he was famous for generating an electric atmosphere when he entered the podium. And the slump only continued for Enes. During 1937, several members disappeared and the organisation seemed to be more or less losing what little it had of popular support. Only the hardcore members remained and Quisling had trouble finding political attack points really. One such point he did find was the reform changing the election cycle from three to four years as we mentioned. And he, in thirty-eight, started saying that after the 1st of January 1940, Norway would not have a legitimate government. And, you know, Quisling being Quisling, he would mean everything he said quite literally. So this was for him not just rhetoric. He literally meant that power was up for grabs after this, even though the decision had great, you know, political support, the reform of going from three to four years is, you know, not really seen as controversial from, from other points of view. And now we, we are quickly approaching the start of the war, but I just want to include one small side story and one character that is worth mentioning at this point, and she is one of very few women in our, in our story. She is also perhaps the most fanatical Person we will come across, and that says a lot. So, it's actually so much that it is borderlining insanity. It might be insanity actually. And is Haldis Negor Östby. Östby and her husband are definitely uh, part of what is the hardcore NS tribe. And she is such an anti-Semite that it's really hard to find words for it. Uh, in many ways, she actually became too extreme for for NS. And we've 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 come with a fair few warnings earlier. Uh, but it might be time to just remind listeners again that some of this content uh, might seem offensive, and, well, it is really offensive, to be honest. Sb would run a lot of the propaganda activities for NS before being squeezed out right before the war, partly just because she was a woman, but there were never really doubts about her dedication, and it seems that anti-Semitism was a really driving force. She was obsessed with the quote-unquote Jewish question. Uh, she she even attri- she's even attributed for being the driving force for Ennis becoming through and through a racist organization in the thirties. She published two books. Uh, one is called "The Jewish Problem and Its Solution" in nineteen thirty eight, and then "The Jewish War" in nineteen forty one. What is a little strange about her is that she, in a way, was a feminist and was fighting for women to have equal rights as men. She was a pioneer when it came to women skiing, demanded that they could compete in pants like the men instead of skirts, and it seems strange that a person so much fighting against discrimination in one area can be so blind about her own total discrimination of other people. She would be an advocate for Holocaust, and in this way, one of her letters is really important, as she writes about Esther Quisling. As many Nazis after the war, Quisling would deny knowing about the extermination camps and the systematic killing of the Jewish people. But this be writes to Quisling in 42, after the time of the Wannsee Conference, where the Holocaust and the so-called final solution was decided, referring to the concentration camps, and that her thoughts of the matter was that the Jewish people should be shot quick without suffering like the animals. She also argued that no soldier of Aryan heritage should have to do this, in her mind necessary dirty work, but that the Asians or Russians should do the killing. This is part of an increasing amount of proof that has emerged, that there was really no doubt that Quisling and other top Nazis knew what was going on, and either actively participated or chose to turn a blind eye to the atrocities. For Isby's part, she herself outraged the Norwegian Jews as part of what is a small but very dark chapter of the Holocaust. Very few of the Norwegian Jewish population that had not already fled before being arrested will end up surviving. A life is like Whistling and many of the other Nazis a tragedy. She will end up spending a few years in jail after the war before escaping, travelling through several countries as a fugitive before returning in Norway in 1953 and uh, she was shortly granted freedom actually but she was still so entangled in various conspiracy theories and hatred that she, well, lack of better words, completely lost her mind and ended her days in a mental hospital before eventually dying in 1983. Thanks to Estabee and others, anti-Semitism had become a huge part of NS in 1938, but Quisling ...would have this strange ambivalent view of this, perhaps in an attempt to keep a small party gathered... ...that had both fanatics, like Ostby, and other more conservative members. And when Kristallnacht happened in late 1938, where Jewish stores were smashed up and the anti-Semitism in Germany finally erupted into violent chaos... Quisling would have this head-shaking attitude, saying that it was such a pity, phrasing it something like this, quote, The Jewish question's tragic development in Germany, end quote. So, basically, he is saying that the hatred is really tragic, and that it is the Jews' fault that they are being persecuted, because they are the problem to begin with, in his view. So, in this completely twisted worldview, he sees this as yet another proof that the Jewish and Aryan population cannot live together, and he's still talking about different places one can send the Jews, uh, suggesting, as we before mentioned, Madagascar, many other places, Cyprus was big for him also. It is strange how much time people I guess to be in Quisling will actually spend thinking about where they can deport the Jewish population but these are debates that are very much going on and they seem to have completely cemented the view that coexistence is utterly impossible. The 20th of April 1939 is Adolf Hitler's 50th birthday, and is the first time Quisler directly makes contact with a German dictator, congratulating him and saluting him for saving the world from Bolshevism and what he calls the Jewish threat. As we know, the Second World War finally breaks out on September 1st, 1939, as Nazi Germany invades Poland, and two days later Great Britain and France, having put up with many of Hitler's aggressions and expansions up to this point, have had enough and declare war on September 3rd. Just. About a week before this, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union had signed a non-aggression pact called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after the two foreign ministers. And if you wonder whose name is behind the Molotov cocktail, well, now you know. On September 17th, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east, meaning that the two nations basically are dividing Poland between them. The first months of the Second World War is, is surprisingly quiet. There's not really all that much happening, at least not on land. Uh, there are battles between Britain and Germany at sea, but other than this, not so much. It was actually described as the phony war by certain newspapers. At this point, we must introduce a new character. Enter Albert Hargelin, a former opera singer turned Nazi. He was a Norwegian living in Germany as a quite successful businessman and he enters the fray in 1939 and will in many ways become Quisling's new right-hand man, kind of pushing Pritz out of the way. Even though Pritz actually, he's still, you know, around. But it was through this really obscure connection, actually, that Targalin gets in touch with the Nazi party leadership and that's just the mind-blowing isn't it that how sort of coincidence can can change history but uh, he had an obscure connection namely through Luftwaffe boss Hermann Göring's nephew that he met in his tennis club in Dresden and through this nephew he gets access to the very top center in the German Nazi party he initially wanted monetary support for this that was his sort of uh, mission and his two contacts were the before mentioned Nazi ideologist Alfred Rosenberg this was a guy with a Nazi church remember? And the other one is uh, Grand Admiral Erich Rieder Großadmiral, I think it's in German. And in this through and the Quisling all of a sudden gets an invitation to go to Germany to meet Adolf Hitler in person. Now this might seem More than a little strange because why would Quisling, at this point a leader of a political party with perhaps a couple of percent of the Norwegian vote, max, get an invitation to meet with their Fuhrer? And there are some explanations to this, not least that Rader might have had his own agenda, and perhaps Rosenberg also. He was likely more interested in Quisling from an ideological viewpoint whereas Rader might have had some more practical motivations. As we briefly mentioned, the war between Germany and Britain at this point had mainly been at sea, and Rader was in charge of the German navy. Norway, if we look at the map, is really long with all these fjords and natural harbours and has a strategic important position towards Great Britain. So if Germany could control the Norwegian harbours, they would gain an advantage. So getting the Norwegian Nazi leader to meet with Hitler and get cosy didn't seem like such a bad idea. Also in terms of a potential blockade of Britain, Norway seemed like a decent acquisition. So Quisling and Hagelen, they travelled to meet with Hitler over two meetings at Berlin, the 14th and the 18th of December 1939. We have pretty well documented what was said in these meetings, according to historian Hans Friedrich Dahl. Firstly, Hitler. This is the first meeting, by the way. Firstly, Hitler went on for about twenty minutes in a quite rampant monologue. I just can envision him, just like the sort of uh, the parodies with him being just completely uh, aggressive and speaking with a high-pitched voice. He talked for twenty minutes about uh, almost shouting to Quistling that Norway's place in the war was to stay neutral and not get involved in any kind of British nonsense. He said that if Norway in any way did that or allowed the British to put troops on Norwegian soil, Germany would come with as many battalions as necessary to get them out. Then Quisling uh, started talking and it became pretty quickly clear to Hitler that Quisling had no such intention and he came with what Quisling saw as a peace suggestion. Tradition. Quisling always had this desire to try to negotiate between the big players, making himself very big in the process. So meeting with Hitler was perfect for him. This is basically the highlight of his political career up until now. Somewhat surprisingly, Hitler responded that it was a pity with the war against the British and that he, quote, always had been an Anglophile, end quote. And Quisling, to a certain degree, also saw himself as such. Quisling then had some time to tell Hitler about NS politics and Norway's political states, where the sympathy for Britain was quite big, which must have been quite important intel. Hitler apparently almost laughed when Quisling told him in full seriousness that Norway's government would be illegal as of January 1st because of the change from three to four year election cycle. And Hitler advised Quisling not to try to take power on such a vague foundation. Overall, this first meeting at December 14th went well for Quisling, and they agreed to talk again a few days later. What happened, however, uh, already at the same evening, on the 14th, Hitler gives this order according to one of his general's diaries, Quote, Time 1715. Der Führer commands that it with the smallest possible staff shall be investigated how to come in possession of Norway. End quote. So, boom, basically what happens is that Quisling's meeting immediately triggers the secret planning of the invasion of his homeland. It basically seems like if we don't take that country soon, the British will. The plan for Hitler was at this point not to take Denmark and Norway. Denmark is basically only, or was for him, only a little bit of a needless strip of land needed to connect the empire. But he was rather thinking of starting the invasion of France that he had been planning for a while. It just reminds me a little bit of the the Narnia books, if you read them. You know, when, when Edmund leaves his sibling to go to the White Witch and quickly finds out that he's way in over his head and that she's using him in a much greater play where he is only a pawn. During their next meeting on the 18th, the talks continue and Quisling looks at the military intel they have on Norway pointing out and correcting errors, and they agreed that Norway ideally should remain neutral, but that Germany would come if needed to beat the English to access to the country, and Quisling promised to call Germany for help if he by any chance would gain power in Norway. At the same time, Hitler promised financial backing to NS. Hitler clearly liked Quisling. Both him and Reda saw him as this same intelligent child that we have described him as before, honest in his own way and naive. It's almost like they saw him as rather cute. Hitler had little love for other national socialists across Europe as he saw them as mindless copycats. And even though Quisling was a huge fanboy of Hitler, he was likely not the same sycophant as the others might have been. He even told Hitler that he did not see himself as a National Socialist, even though he clearly ticked just about all the boxes. In Quisling's mind, he was a big thinker, and as such had his dreamy ideological views, and he even pitched several other ideas to Hitler about Nordic alliances and so forth, so he wanted to be his own man, so to speak, with his own ideas. Hitler and Quisling would meet many times after this, but the meetings on the fourteenth and eighteenth were the most important for the course of the war as Intense German activity started literally the same day as the first meeting, both military and politically. Rosenberg's people were mostly concerned by getting a Norwegian coup underway, inserting Quisling as new head of state, whereas the military started planning a joint invasion of Norway. And here we are right back to the very beginning of this episode, because How do you really overtake another country in the modern world? How do you really, really do that in practice? And the funny thing is, Adolf Hitler doesn't really know at this point. And this is why they are talking about all kinds of military operations, in addition to supporting a coup with the help of a local Nazi leader, or perhaps they should only use him as a puppet financing it, or would that backfire? Hitler immediately gets this idea that Quisling must be quote-unquote untouched. He's actually concerned that it must seem kind of legit that he would soon take over power. Isn't that just, you know, fascinating? When you look at these really old World at War documentaries from BBC, I think they're from the 70s, you would see these really old-fashioned graphics. There would just be this map of Europe and... First, the swastika flag is only over Germany before it starts spreading like a virus almost, and often with help of arrows showing where the troops would invade. And then all of a sudden, Denmark, Norway, and other countries would have swastikas all over their territories. And then Netherlands, Belgium, luxembourg you know, all this would follow and also getting swastikas. But the fact is this. Hitler does not really know how exactly to invade at this point, at least he does not have a standard five-step plan how to do this. You know, he has Austria, of course, but that was through the Anschluss, the more or less voluntary union, and there is Poland, of course, but there was the racial thing there—the Slavs. You know, he wrote about in Mein Kampf, the Slavs can't kind of govern themselves. It was all a bit of the uh, the, the sort of uh, the package, you know, and splitting up uh, Poland with the Soviet Union and some pseudo historical excuses, perhaps. But but if he does this, he's inviting other Aryans, right? He's inviting the you know it's bloody well going after Richard Wagner's Vikings I mean with or without the Horned Helmets is a completely neutral country that had also stayed neutral during the first world war so how do you come up with a narrative that is going to work with that how are you still going to do that and at the same time portray yourself as a good guy you can't use the racial ideology because the people are blonder and more blue eyed than most Germans and Austrians anyway, and you can't say they're a military threat. If anything, Prime Minister Nigoswell will get a lot of well deserved stick for not building up the army and mobilizing much uh, or at least much sooner when the world was clearly moving towards a huge conflict. And one of his perhaps tiny straws that he's clinging onto in this case of justifying an occupation that is convenient because of the sheer strategic position on the map is this local Nazi leader it is the Quisling. what really fascinates me so much about the second world war and not least adolf hitler is that he's improvising a lot he is a gambler that does the unexpected And militarily, Norway, it's peanuts for the Third Reich at this time. It's not even a a combat. And the same with Denmark. And sorry if I offended any Danish people earlier by saying it was just a strip of land. It might have been many other good reasons for occupying Denmark. It's a fantastic place. But uh, in this sort of uh, essence, Denmark is, is taken in. In one day and it's easy to conquer. And even though Norwegian forces, they will fight bravely, like many others uh, when faced with the superior Nazis, the Soviets at this time, they really had no chance. And... Let's talk about the invasion for a a little bit and uh, Denmark versus Norway because Norwegian geography makes an invasion much, much, much more complicated than it would otherwise have been. You have all the fjords and the long distance from south to north. uh, You have climate uh, and the mountains. When it comes to Denmark that uh, gets uh, invaded on the same date, it's geographically super easy to overrun militarily in comparison. Uh, Denmark has a land border to Germany. It's relatively small, and it has more or less no obstacles at all. It is flat and beautiful with great beaches. it, you know That's fantastic if you want to farm there or live there or go there on holidays, but it's not ideal if you want to defend it against superior German tanks and aircraft. Norway, on the other hand, is a completely different kind of task. So the invasion of Norway is actually quite unique from a military standpoint as germany will have to use a lot of airborne troops troops together with you know synchronized attacks from the sea but basically either by sheer naivety and willingness to share information about norway's politically political and military situation or by him convincing hitler that he was a strong political ally or by making hitler really see norway's strategic importance in the war against the brits wittgen Quisling changes the course of the war in December 1939. Instead of going straight for France, Hitler on the 9th of April 1940 invades Denmark and Norway, and the Second World War stops being just the phony war. It has become the real war. And just how intense it will become. How Quisling's fate will turn out and how Nazism can shape a democratic society is something that we will really dig into in our next episode. I can promise you an up close view of a new main character, one of the most horrible narcissists you that you probably didn't even know existed. Quisling's life is going from obscurity to working from the abandoned royal palace, a relatively unknown book for a world famous Nobel Prize winning author is going to play a part, and a whole lot more when we continue. <laughs> thanks again so much for listening this is still very much a podcast in its infancy and if you made it through and even liked it giving it a review in app store or subscribing to it really helps and motivates so also feel free to follow me on social media my account on twitter is called game changing history or at Fra Lund f-r-a-l-u-n-d-h and there is also a webpage up at gamechanginghistory.com with some more info And I'm more than happy to discuss history or listen to feedback. So yeah, that's it. Cheers.